0: Episode 22, Jesus' Resurrection Day was a bigger deal than you may realize. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham Welcome to Rethinking the Bible This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks, I think, since I posted last. I'm excited to get back at it today. Uh, I live in Montana. I am in my classroom space today. It's about 25 degrees below zero outside. And uh, yesterday was 30 below. That's, I think, the coldest I've ever been in. But uh, today I'm sitting in the classroom, which is a converted warehouse space. And uh, I'm sitting between two radiant heaters, our main uh, forced air heater, which is a... uh, The nemesis of our classroom. It is uh, too loud and uh, too distracting to so much of what we do here, including uh, when I record. So I've got it turned off and um, it may be my uh, signal as to when it's time to stop this episode uh, when I get too cold. Um, Right now in the room it's 61 degrees, uh, which isn't quite warm enough anyway, but I'm sitting between these two heaters and uh, so I think that may work out. I've been excited to get back at this. I'm actually hoping to record two uh, episodes today, and what I'll be doing, uh, I have been uh, very busy, but um, I have found two articles that are on my blog that have uh, recently uh, rescued my blog from a terrible malware, malware attack that attacked all our websites last year, but I've got the blog back up, uh, in case you're wondering, it's at jackpelham.com. J A C K P E L H A M dot com. And I'm going to be reading an old article to you today and then commenting whenever I feel like it. And uh, so the article is from uh, April 12 of 2020. Actually, that's not all that long ago. Uh, But uh, we'll be talking about that. I wanted to tell you in general, I've been very busy. We have a. uh, a chorus of teens and adults. It's about 29 people right now. Sounds fantastic and um, they've gotten so good that uh, our room is inadequate to make the acoustics um, sound good when they're singing. So lately we've been uh, putting up a couple of uh, coral shell type walls and uh, building our stage area to accommodate the chorus specifically. So that's been a fun project and very needed one and also very time consuming. I'm in my slow period of the year work-wise and trying to scramble up enough work to keep eating. And uh, So uh, there's always something going on. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad to be back at it t- today. Uh, these and a few other articles I've written in the past are ones I would like to read and uh, turn into podcast episodes uh, as well as to continue on uh, with what we've been doing. Uh, the title of today's book uh, blog post is, Jesus' Resurrection Day was a bigger deal than you may realize, and uh, a subtitle is, Jesus Wasn't the Only One to Come Back to Life That Day. So I want to talk about this, and actually you could consider this a a further um, look into Hebrews 12. Uh, We looked at Hebrews 11 some weeks back, and uh, I wanted to get more into 12, and actually I did... um, record uh, something of an answer to chapter 12, but I haven't gone back to edit that yet. And uh, it was not as complete as I would have liked anyway. So this article is fairly complete today. I'm going to read it. Uh, Surely I will intersperse uh, interjections here and there. And as I've learned about myself, most of what I would interject is something that I probably address in the very next paragraph anyway. Uh, So, it's funny, when you write, you cannot write everything at once, and sometimes I think, oh, this should be mentioned here. Well, it turns out, uh, two sentences later, it is mentioned. So, this happens to me a lot, and today will happen to you, um, I'm sure, if I do it. So, um, anyway, with that, I think I'll just jump right into this article, and uh, what I'll do is uh, repost the article uh, in its entirety on the page for this episode at RethinkingTheBible.com. Uh, so, here we go. Jesus' Resurrection Day was a bigger deal than you may realize. April 12, 2020. The mass resurrection of many holy people just after Jesus himself was raised. So, this is sort of a, um, a subline here to help people know what it's about. So, here we go. Jesus' resurrection was, no doubt, one of the more glorious events in human history. But I submit that that day's events were even bigger than most realize. There's a detail right under our noses in Matthew 27, and most who read it never seem to grasp just what a big deal it is. There was another story running concurrently with Jesus' own death and resurrection, and in Matthew, we get two sentences about it, which the author inserts at the point in time at which the story began. Read it here. Matthew 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So, uh... See, here's an example. I'll probably say this in the next paragraph, but I just have to jump in here. Uh, please note that they came out after Jesus was resurrected. That's very important. This throws some people off. And they don't pay attention to that uh, as to the timing. And uh, hopefully this article will mention that. So going on. The story of this mass resurrection begins at the moment that Jesus died. There was a rock-splitting earthquake, and it broke open the tombs. And the body of many holy people, the bodies of many holy people, came to life again. At what exact point in time we are not told, but after Jesus' own resurrection, those holy people in their resurrected human bodies came out of those tombs and went into Jerusalem where many people saw them. That's what we're told. And this is the only passage in the Bible that speaks of this event in historical narrative fashion. You can search the other three Gospels and not find a peep about it. And nowhere in the epistles will you find the event covered in this sort of here's what happened way. But even so, here it is in Matthew 27, right under our noses, and this really puts us to the test. Do we need to take this story into account as we size up the big picture of Jesus' resurrection? Or is it simply insignificant? Many Many, it seems, decide on the latter. They rarely talk about it. And when the preachers do happen to read past it in a public scripture reading, many choose not even to comment on it. And when they do comment on it, often, the comments seem aimed at minimizing the importance of this spectacular event. You'll hear things like, well, this miraculous event was just another way that God was showing the glory of Jesus' resurrection. And what a tragic understatement that is. When we run across this passage in Matthew 27, it should immediately send us scurrying through the scriptures to see what else is said about it. There are some New Testament passages that allude to this, I believe, but none that come right out and tell us the story again like Matthew does. And some moderns may use this fact even as a reason to doubt Matthew's account of it. But how many times does the Bible have to tell us a thing to make it true? If once isn't enough then we have some serious issues of faith going on, right? Because we tend to be cognitive misers when it comes to studying the Bible, it never occurs to most folks to go looking for more information, and much less to dare to get into the Old Testament in search of more material about this mass resurrection. But I believe that it was prophesied in advance and more than once. Let me show you just two of the passages I have in mind and then we'll take a further look at some New Testament passages that I believe allude to this mass resurrection. For starters, we'll return or we'll turn to the dry bones prophecy in Ezekiel 37. I'll post it below in sections and intersperse a few comments along the way. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Very dry makes it plain that these were the bones of those having been dead a long time. And notice how they were, quote, on the surface, end quote, where they could be seen. Matthew's account has the tombs being broken open, where I would presume that their contents could be seen, at least partially, by onlookers. So let's not miss the similarity between the two passages. Now going on, Ezekiel 37, verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. (laughs) Uh, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice that what was prophesied to happen here seems like the reconstituting of their human bodies, starting with the bones. The flesh and blood and skin and organs had long since rotted away, leaving just the bones. But God was foretelling a time when he would bring them back alive again and this does and this does not seem to be a story about giving them heavenly bodies or spiritual bodies such as we read about in 1st Corinthians 15 no this seems very much to be the return of regular human bodies to the original bones let's continue with ezekiel ezekiel 37 verse 7 so i prophesied as i was commanded and as i prophesied there was a great sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So the bodies were reconstituted, and again, the description seems like the normal description of a human body. And once the breath, that is ruach in the Hebrew, uh, which is translated as breath or wind or spirit, once it came into them, they were back alive and stood up. And Ezekiel makes it a point here to describe their number. They were, quote, an exceedingly great army, end quote. And this does jibe with the Greek in Matthew 27 somewhat. Matthew uses polus, which is a standard Greek word for many. The use of that word is a little aggravating in this present case, since it's often used relatively. That is, the soldiers in a great army would be called many, but so would a crowd inside a house. And the point here being that uh, to have a crowd in a house is unusually many for the house. There is a linguistic link between the Greek, um, that is the Septuagint version of Ezekiel 37 and Matthew 27, however. Each uses a form of the Greek word for many, that's polos, that we saw in Matthew 27, 52. Here are the excerpts with translations. Now, I'm not going to read the Greek for you. I can read Greek, but not uh, fast enough to be uh, useful. And what's the point anyway if you don't know Greek? Uh, so anyway, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. The word uh, "polos" that's the the lemma, the basic form of the uh, basic word. Well, the word here is "pola." And it says, uh, it's used in the word many here in this excerpt, and many bodies of the having been sleeping holy ones. So that's the way it talks about these many bodies. Um, And then Ezekiel 37, the word uh, pole is used, just another form of the same lemma. And uh, here it is literally translated from the Greek, a gathering many exceedingly which is, of course, awkward to us in English, but that's the Greek syntax. A gathering many exceedingly. So the same word is used in both. There is a context, I mean, not a context, but there is a, um, a reason to tie the two together, a, a linguistic link, as I said previously. And uh, does, this, does this prove that Matthew had Ezekiel in mind when he wrote this? No. No. Is it uh, a possible Easter egg like uh, these authors sometimes did? Yes, it is possibly that. And, of course, that comes down to our judgment, and either we judge the question well or poorly, right? So going on with my article. Both passages use a variation of polus uh, to describe the number of those raised. And while this by no means proves that the two groups in question were the same, it is certainly a detail worth noting as New Testament authors frequently used specific words or phrases from Old Testament passages to which they wanted to draw the attention of the well-read reader. And if these two passages do speak of the same raised crowd, then Ezekiel gives us a fuller indication of the number by including the word translated exceedingly here. So let's get back to the text of Ezekiel 37, uh, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Those to be raised were the ones among the dead whom God considered, quote, the whole house of Israel, end quote. The way I interpret that It's the group of all the faithful from Adam forward. And I don't have room here to explain that. Uh, And he brings them back into the land of Israel, that promised land, where they could finally live better with the help of the Spirit that he would put within them. Is it just a coincidence that God poured out the Spirit on the Christians in Acts 2, just a few weeks after Jesus' resurrection and just days after his ascension into heaven? That is, These holy dead were raised by the power of the Spirit on the day that Jesus was raised and they were to live in the land. Well, also living there were the Christians who were also given the indwelling Holy Spirit. Peter plainly announces in his famous Pentecost sermon that that period was the fulfillment of Joel 2. Here's Peter in Acts 2.16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, this is Peter explaining what all was going on. There were visitors in Jerusalem um, who were not familiar with the Christians and uh, what all had happened with Jesus and so forth. So Peter standing up, giving this great speech, telling them all what's happening. And he goes on in verse 17. He's quoting from Joel. Uh, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter announces that they are in the last days and that the pouring out of the Spirit was to mark that era. And I want to show you a passage from just one chapter earlier from that dry bones prophecy. Many Christians use this passage thinking that it tells about God pouring out His Spirit in Acts 2. So this is Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the counties, countries, And bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Many see how this seems to fit Acts 2 so well. Not only do they connect the, quote, put my spirit within you, end quote, to Peter's promise, quote, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, end quote, which is Acts 2, 36 through 38. But they'll even connect uh, where Ezekiel says sprinkle clean water on you with uh, Peter's statement, clean from all your um, uncleanliness or uncleanness. What a strange word, uncleannesses. Oh, oh, pardon me, I'm having trouble reading. Clean you from all your uncleannesses. And uh, that was with the baptism Peter taught on that same day. But if you study the context carefully between Ezekiel 36 and 37, you'll see it's talking about the same people who were to be raised in the dry bones event. That is, when God was talking to the living Jews in Ezekiel 36, he was telling them, telling them about their own resurrection, one they would experience if they would be faithful to him during their first lifetimes. He wasn't talking to them to tell them about what would happen to some future set of believers. Yes, there would be some significant events among the never-dead believers at the same time, but Ezekiel 37 was not about those future Jews, but about the whole house of Israel among the dead. And so, the way I see it, Jesus was busting out all the faithful from Sheol or Hades, where they were promi- or where they were prisoners and captives. Now I'm going to stop right here. This opens up a whole bunch of language uh, issues. So let me point out that Sheol is the Hebrew word for the underground, the underworld, the place of the dead, uh, and also the place. Of, or at least generally, the place of the imprisoned angels who had sinned in various ways and been incarcerated for it. And then the word Hades is simply the Greek word for the same thing. Uh, Now, Hades, that word is uh, very familiarly used throughout a lot of the uh, uh, Greek, in particular, um, mythologies. And uh, a lot of people might write it off, but it's very interesting to know that the Bible authors use this Greek word to refer to Sheol which is a very well documented idea in the Hebrew scriptures. So here they're both talking about the same thing that uh, surprises a lot of people and surprises are very good when it comes to learning things. You know in science if you have a, a if you're going to do an experiment and you have a hypothesis about what should happen and then the results are surprising to you, well you're about to learn something. And it's the same thing with studying the Bible. So here we find that the word Hades that appears in all these uh, Greek uh, mythologies about uh, the world and the different religions and such, uh, it appears also in the Bible from writers who are clearly writing on the um, tradition of the Hebrew Sheol. So it's the same thing. Now, it may be described in different terms, and the Greeks may have different beliefs about it than the Hebrews did. That should be no surprise to us. However that they do use the same word, uh, that is something we can learn from. And then also I had mentioned here uh, prisoners and captives. And both of those words appear a lot in the Old Testament, particularly in these passages that foretell this very event that we're talking about today, this Matthew 27 mass resurrection. And so uh, that's a, a fantastic study to go search prisoners or prison and captive or captives in the Old Testament and in the new, and put the whole picture together. In fact, that's how I got this study, uh, doing that kind of grunt work. So going on, um, let's see, I I say, and so the way I see it, Jesus was busting out all the faithful from Sheol slash Hades, where they were prisoners and captives. And while an entire book could be written on this subject, I'll just give you a sampler here with a couple of one-liners from Psalm 68 which is also quoted in the New Testament in Ephesians 4, 8 through 9. So here's a bit from Psalm 68. It looks like I have about five excerpts, uh, starting from verse 6. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So again, I, I'm going to have to not go too far afield here, but he's... Uh, Contrasting what he's going to do for the righteous versus the unrighteous. The righteous were going to be led out uh, as prisoners coming into prosperity, but the rebellious, uh, they were going to dwell in the dry place, in the parched land. And that is not a good thing. Uh, so, uh, and, and there's a whole rich uh, Hebrew language uh with all this this kind of imagery here now going down to verse 9 the second half uh you this is the psalmist talking to god here you restored your inheritance as it languished so we have this idea of god restoring his inheritance now that is the nation of israel this is somewhat the uh so-called deuteronomy 32 worldview that god had uh separated out the nations he took Israel for his own and uh, basically divorced all the other nations handed them over to rulership under lesser Elohim that is under angels who are not God although they are Elohim being the spiritual beings in that realm uh, and so God who is unlike all the others um, because he's the creator he took Israel for himself and he would eventually restore all those faithful. So it says here, you restored your inheritance as it languished. And it was indeed languishing in Sheol. We already read a passage about that and uh, about how they were all, their bones are dried up and, and this and that. There's a lot of passages about that languishing. Uh, going on to Psalm uh, 68, verse 18, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train." So this is what I think is exactly relevant to the Matthew 27 event. When Jesus ascended, he led a host of captives in his train. And, of course, the train is the, the royal garment. Of course, brides uh, sometimes wear them today, the long uh, white flowing thing that drags on the floor and gets dirty and snags whatever may be on the floor. Uh, and so that idea here that he had a host of captives in his train, so to speak. I don't. I don't think this is meant to be literal language. I think this is meant to be language of royalty and uh, of you know g- great works and uh, great deeds and, and such. And so, notice this word, leading a host of captives. That is the Hebrew word for army. The same word that's used in uh, Genesis two, verse one where it says that, uh, so everything was finished, and the stars in their hosts. Um, the, so the armies of stars, which I actually believe is a reference to angels and not to the literal stars that people see in the sky. But that's another uh, chapter for sure. So here we have this idea of the host, and that was uh, used earlier in the, um, in the Ezekiel 37, the dry bones chapter. So going on in Psalm 68, verse 20, uh, the second half, it says, And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. So think about that, that the psalmist is predicting here a time when people would be delivered from death. Well, this um, opens another can of worms. For instance, if you remember in the Revelation, the idea of uh, one coming from heaven having the keys of Hades, or of death in Hades. And this is mentioned, uh, I think, in a couple of passages. Well, here you go. These are people being delivered from death. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean they're delivered from the state of being dead? Well, that is certainly true that these were dead people, uh, meaning their bodies are dead, only their spirits alive. Uh, however, uh, there's another sense of death here where. Uh, you know, death could be a place. In fact, if death and Hades have keys, that makes you wonder, hmm, well, most things that have keys are places, at least in the literal sense of the terms. Uh, or is death a person? And I think this also is a possibility that we need to consider considerably because, um, Uh, If you notice in the end of the Revelation, people get punished, they get thrown into this lake of fire. And who are some of these people? Well, the dragon, the serpent, is one. And uh, also death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire. So what if death uh, is not only a literal physical state of having a body be dead, uh, and it's not only the the state of death, having your spirit waiting in Sheol or Hades, but what if it's also the name of the angel-type being who had charge over uh, Sheol and Hades? And so those are things that all need to be considered here. I believe that uh, this is probably convoluted on purpose, that they would have understood that this being having charge over them, well, yeah, they're in a state of death. Their bodies are dead, but they're also in the domain of death. They're living in the place where death is the king, the ruler. Death, the, That is, death is the name of a, a person, a being, who has charge over them. So uh, something for you to think about and study out deeper. And then there's one more uh, little nugget here in Psalm 68, verse 24, Your procession is seen, O God. Now remember that he would... um, Let me back up here and find it. Um, Oh, that they would be in his train. He would lead the captives or lead the prisoners in his train. And here we have your procession is seen. So we're talking about a parade of people, a procession that is seen by others. It was no private event. It was a public event. We're making a show here. We're doing this on purpose. And this idea does come out in the Scriptures a bit, like even Paul who said that you know we apostles are at the end of the parade, at the end of the procession, uh, being seen by angels even. Uh, not only angels, but uh, angels were certainly among the crowd. So there's a bunch of uh, language like this in the Bible. This is very rich. If you just read this passage and don't know anything about The rest of the Bible, you might miss these kinds of things. So now I'll go on with my article. The psalm, and this is talking about Psalm 68, shows God, or more specifically Jesus, I believe, uh, doing these things. And here's a list, a bullet list. Uh, First one is leading out the prisoners from Sheol and Hades to prosperity, uh, restoring his inheritance who were languishing in Sheol, ascending upward to the face of the earth, leading the captive faithful behind him, uh, delivering them from death. And the last one is starting a procession of those so delivered, so as to be seen by many among the living. And indeed, that would be big news, right? Because people had never raised from the dead in this way before. Uh, And boy, that's another can of worms. And uh, to be honest, I have not reviewed this article before reading it today. I don't remember whether I get into this or not, but some people want to talk about Lazarus being raised from the dead or the uh, the boy that Elijah raised from the dead. And uh, they'll say, see, other people had raised from the dead, but I'm going to, I cannot speak. I'm going to contend that that is a different kind of being raised from the dead. And hey, why not tell you right now why? Uh, in 2 Esdras, chapter 7, there is a uh, fascinating passage. I believe this starts in about verse 75. And you can find this in the Common English Bible. Uh, it's, it's an apocrypha book. We've talked about it before. But there's a passage that uh, says that when a person dies, when the royal decree goes out that their time is done, that uh, God would send the angels and they would take the spirit of that person uh, that spirit having been separated from the dead body, and it would go to meet God and God would have a meeting with them and tell them uh, basically how he's going to judge them. and uh, then they would go, they would have seven days to wander the earth, and then they would be taken into Sheol, where they would go to the proper place for them based on what God had judged, uh, where they would then would await for Jesus to come. And so uh, they had these seven days to wander about. Well, if you look at Lazarus, how many days was he in the grave? Four. If the Esdras thing is true, and good luck finding more information about this in the Bible books because I don't think you'll find it. I've looked for a long time. Uh, But so if the Esdras thing is true, then lazarus would not yet have been taken to the underworld because his seven days had not been up now to be fair you'll find other discussion among this some hebrews thought that it was uh, 3 days or 4 days i believe and yet here but the only passage that i can find in what seems to be scripture is this one in 2 esdras chapter 7 So this would take uh, the widow, um, the orphan, I'm sorry, not the orphan, but the child of the widow that Elijah raised. Well, he would not have been dead seven days, nor would Lazarus. So if that's true, this is a different kind of resurrection. That is simply the putting of the spirit right back in the body. This is the putting of the spirit back in the reconstituted body that having rotted away was reconstituted, made alive again, and you bring back their spirit from Hades and put it back in the same body. So that's a different animal uh, the way I see it, and I sure wish I had more information, but there you go. Okay, so where was I? Uh, Let's see, I was going down this list of things that, that happened in the Psalm 68, or that were supposed to happen, that were prophesied, And uh, the last one was starting a procession of those so delivered, so as to be seen by many among the living. And regarding the last item on this list, let's look back to the account in Matthew 27. So here's Matthew 27, verse 53. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection uh, and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So here you have uh, the same many, you know, to be seen by many and here they were uh appearing to many people and there and remember this was a lot of them we're not told how many there were but um hey <laughs> the that's the danger of having a um an abridged uh uh writings about these events right we're just there's not room in the bible to tell us everything that happened so i go on first of all while we're looking at this verse Who was resurrected first? Well, Jesus was. He was the leader of the procession, and they followed behind. Secondly, once they were raised, where did they go? They proceeded to Jerusalem, where they were seen by many people, just as Psalm 68 had prophesied. So then I have a a heading, New Testament Illusions? Question mark. While the Matthew 27 passage is the only historical narrative of this mass resurrection in the New Testament, I believe it is alluded to in a few places. In the first passage, I'll share these, quote, many holy people, end quote, who were raised are referred to as a cloud of witnesses who were surrounding the never-dead Christians. And when I say never-dead, I mean people who've, whose bodies had never died but were still living at the time. Uh, as opposed to those whose bodies had died but were brought back to life, uh, which I suppose I might have called those previously dead, or something like that. So here's Hebrews 12, 1, and this is where I said that this uh, study is a bit of a continuation on that Hebrews 11 1. Hebrews twelve verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those witnesses, of course, were the subject matter for the whole of chapter eleven. Just before this verse, specifically mentioned among them are Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, just to name a few. And remember, Ezekiel 37 describes those who were to be raised as, quote, the whole house of Israel, end quote. And I contend that this does not include the unfaithful among the Israelites, for God had in mind only the true Jews among them, just as Paul puts it here. Now, this is Romans two twenty-eight. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I believe that those many holy people were raised, uh, who were raised were the true inward Jews. And that's what God counted as, quote, the whole house of Israel, end quote, from among the dead. Those people were brought back into the land at Jesus' resurrection, where they would live out that generation among the never-having-died Christians. So this is important here to understand, you know, what are the the options? Uh, one is that while well, those people were brought back to life, but Jesus took them with uh, him to heaven in Acts 1 when he went up. There's that possibility. Uh, we are not told that that happened. I could make a case that that happened, and perhaps we'll talk about that. But I don't think it's a good case. In fact, I have. A, there's another explanation for the case I could make that I think is probably more plausible. Uh, so the other option then, okay, well, then they died again. Well, if they died again, that goes against the passage in Hebrews that says it's appointed for man to die but once, and then the judgment. Uh, So here we'd have these people breaking that rule, which would mean they'd have to be a special case. Well, okay, we could look at that and all that. So uh, anyway, I had written, these people were brought back into the land at Jesus' resurrection where they would live out that generation among the never-having-died Christians. Well, this is a third possibility, uh, a fourth, of course, being that, well, they're still there today. Now, the third one, if they lived out that generation, and I'm pretty sure I'll go, out to go on here to make an argument in this article about that. Uh, if they lived out that generation, that's very intriguing because then the question is, well, where are they now? And so we'll see if I cover that. If I don't, then I'll talk about that uh, before we finish up. So I go on, and I believe they were the ones in view in this first resurrection passage. This is Revelation 20 starting about halfway through verse 4. And this is John seeing a vision, and he's seeing uh, uh, a vision of dead people. He says, Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands This is one of those cases where I'm tempted to start talking about this passage immediately, not reading what I wrote about it previously. But I did want to say uh, about this passage while I'm here. There's an and in verse 4b. And verse 4 is a very long verse. I'm going to read it again. Uh, Because some people miss this and. In fact, some translations, uh, some Bible versions miss it. And. Uh, render it as if this passage is talking only about martyrs, and it is not. So let me read it again. This is, I'm pretty sure, from the English Standard Version. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 4b. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. So notice there's an and. I saw the beheaded and those who had not worshipped. This is not only about the martyrs. In fact, uh, I believe we covered this in a previous episode where I was talking about um, 1 Enoch and its mention of the four places in the underworld where a lot of Bible readers will think there's only two because Jesus happened to talk about uh, two of the places once, but didn't talk about all four. And so if the Enoch passage is right, there are four places. Well, uh, here, this looks like two of them represented here. One is those who were were contesting their manner of death, that is, who were making suit uh, that they had been killed unjustly. And that, of course, leads us back to Abel. Uh, Jesus says Abel's blood cries to the ground or from the ground and so forth. So there's that. And then the second group uh, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, well, these are the regular righteous. Uh, Now, those uh, filing suit about their manner of death may also have been righteous. Indeed, we know that Abel was. He's called righteous Abel. But they had a separate place to stay because they were making suit. And isn't that very interesting? I'd love to know more about that. So it looks like two of these places here are mentioned. And interestingly, they are not the same two that Jesus mentions uh, in his one story that talks about it because he had uh, the part he called Abraham's bosom and then he had the part across the chasm where the others were in in torment. And so if you recall back, Enoch's version had Uh, four places. One was for the righteous, one was for those making suit. Well, we've looked at those here, and I do believe the one for the righteous would be the other one you might call Abraham's bosom. And so then the other two places from 1 Enoch were those for the unrighteous, the sort of the regular run-of-the-mill unrighteous, and then a special one for those who were, quote, uh, complete in transgression, end quote. So these are the ones that God would say, A you are completely evil. And those w- were not to be snuffed out, although the other, the regular evil people, the run-of-the-mill evils, were to be snuffed out after some time of suffering. So it was not eternal conscious torment for them, but it was for some of the others, just like it would be for Satan and his angels. So uh, that's a bit of review there. Hopefully you caught that uh, previous episode, whichever one that was. And uh, so now let's get back into this passage. Uh, Revelation 20, starting in verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. And this is always tricky here. When it says this, it's, well, which this are you talking about? The one you just mentioned before or the one that you said would happen a thousand years later? Well, it's the first one, obviously. I mean, it kind of has to be. Because if you have two items and one happens before the other, that's the first one, even if you mention the other one in the interim. So uh, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, what is the second death? Well, the first death, let me ask you about that. It's never mentioned by that name in the Bible. But what would you guess the first death would be? Well, that's the death of your body. Well, what would the second death be? That's the death of your spirit. That's how I see that. Uh, those who got to go be in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels who were considered complete in transgression, uh, their spirits would not die. If if I'm interpreting this right. But most of the evil would. They would have a second death. So... Uh, I'd like to look more into this, but this is where I stand right now with this. So, uh, those who were raised in this first resurrection, it says, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, think about this. If I'm right, this class of people, the faithful from Adam forward, who were brought up on the same day as Jesus they would be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. We already know they would appear to many, and it would be a time of prosperity. And keep in mind, we only looked at one or two Old Testament prophecies about this. We did not look uh, at the many, many others. So there's a lot more information about them. So let's go on and see what I wrote. This describes a group of people who had kept themselves holy. Holy. And we should be careful to notice, as some fail to notice, that the group consists not only of martyrs, but also of those who had not worshipped the beast and so forth. These people came to life in a first resurrection, and a second resurrection was to follow later, whatever a thousand years meant. Okay, so the second resurrection, uh, I think this is the getting out of Hades of everybody. Well, if you already got the good guys out, then that leaves the bad guys, uh, and arguably that leaves those who may have died in the interim who were good, such as the Christians who were being martyred, uh, even as such passages were being written. So uh, there's disagreement as to whether they went straight on to heaven or whether they would have gone to uh, Hades slash Sheol, and that is a topic I would love to study Further, some are um, convinced that Paul saying, oh, it's better for me to die and be with the Lord, that he was meaning he would go straight to heaven. But I don't think that's as simple as they tend to think it is. So I'm still working on that one. Sorry, I can't give you more answers there. Okay, so uh, whatever a thousand years meant, I said, uh, going on. Now, to get them out of Sheol, which is called Hades in the Greek, the one who had kept them captive there, Satan, that is, had to be bound so that Jesus could plunder his house. Now this binding is mentioned just before the verses we read. So here I am laying some groundwork, some uh, some investigative uh, evidence that, yeah, this was the plan, and Jesus was talking about these things. So I'm, I'm talking about the bind the strongman passage uh, from Jesus. And I said that this binding is mentioned just before these verses we read from Revelation 20. Let's look at that passage, and then I'll show you where Jesus prophetically foretells this binding himself. Okay, so here we go. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here we're being told very plainly that this dragon in this vision that John is seeing is also the ancient serpent. Well, who do you think that is? This is a reference to Genesis 3 in the garden and the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. Uh, and it goes on to tell us this is also the devil. So that name has been used a lot. Jesus used the term devil. And we're told it's also Satan. So this is like a Rosetta stone of sorts with that had... But the three different languages on it all telling the same story. And so you learn to translate one to the other. While this is similar to that, we're learning this being uh, who was to be seized here is the dragon and the serpent and the devil and Satan. It's all the same thing. There's a lot of discussion about how in the Old Testament, ha shaton is uh, the, the, um, the Hebrew word. It's the Satan, and it's more of a role or a job. Uh, a title than it is a personal name. Uh, y- okay, you can tell me that, but here we have uh, a book that Jesus inspired John to write, and it has him listed as the devil and the serpent and the dragon and Satan altogether. So I it's funny because I think some people get into the Hebrew there and they want to make... Arguments that, oh, no, that uh, person in question was not Satan himself. Um, And there's some room to discuss that. But I think it's too easy for people to forget that right here it's all nailed uh, down together. Not that there was never anybody else who served as the accuser or the adversary. uh, But if there was, I don't know who that was. So uh, if you're not familiar with that argument, uh, just move along. And uh, we'll pretend I hadn't brought it up. So anyway, uh, they seized this dragon, the ancient serpent, uh, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. I think that the passage above parallels the binding that Jesus predicted shortly before his own death. Many miss the prophecy in the following passage, and I'll discuss why after we read it. Matthew 12, verse 29, and this is Jesus talking. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Yes, Jesus had been casting out demons and was criticized by the Jews while doing so. But as so often happened with Jesus, this response went deeper than just to speak to that immediate situation. Yes, he was casting out demons from people so as to rescue the people from Satan's power, but a greater campaign was imminent. And I believe Jesus alludes to that here. Not only was he binding these demons, but he would bind their ultimate leader, Satan himself, and plunder the underworld that was under Satan's dominion. And if you're from the camps who think that the binding of Satan, his removal from the world, so that he could not deceive anyone else for a time, has still not happened today, I think you might not have been careful enough to pay attention to Jesus' specific words here. I'm going to read you John 12, 31. And this is Jesus. Now, is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, he said this at his Last Supper. And I go on. Let's notice three things here. Number one, the ruler of this world was Satan. Jesus calls him this three times in Matthew and nowhere else that we have on record. Uh, and then I have a link to hear those verses for your study. Uh, number two, he was to be cast out. This certainly fits with him having been bound and cast into the pit, which is a special region in the far reaches of Sheol Hades. And that this is me breaking in here. That's in the underworld. Now, that's not on the surface of the planet. So, Satan's thrown into jail for a time. He's away from people on the surface. And then number three, the timing of this was, quote, now, end quote, Jesus said. It was imminent as of his last supper discussion he was having with his apostles. Jesus said these things the night before he died. The next day, Jesus' own spirit would leave his body after death and descend to Sheol slash Hades. There he would not only preach to the spirits in prison, 1 Peter three nineteen, but would bind Satan, the strong man, and plunder his house, bringing up the faithful of the whole house of Israel so that they could live in the land again, this time bringing glory to him as never before. Now I want you to see the following passage in 1 Peter 3 because it ties some things together for us. Not only did Jesus die on the cross... But he went to Sheol and preached to the prisoners, who are not mentioned here as having been released. But then look what it says in the very last verse of the following paragraph. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him at the time of this writing peter was already having superior i'm sorry uh, peter has jesus already having superiority over all the other divine beings except for god of course and this is consistent with jesus having already bound satan but in case you think this passage is only about the holy angels let's look at another Colossians 2, verse 13. And let me back up. In case you think this passage about uh, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, if you think that's only about the holy angels and not about the unholy ones, not about the rebel angels, well, we're going to look forward here. Uh, But it's funny. The, The holy angels were already subjected to Jesus from the beginning. They were created subject to Jesus they never rebelled against that. So, why would the why would Peter describe them as having been subjected to him with regard to his resurrection? That makes no sense. But anyway, we're going to look now at Colossians two, uh, starting in verse thirteen, and this clears it up even more. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here we go. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is in Jesus. Do you see this disarming of rulers and authorities that happened at the time of the cross? They weren't the holy angels that he disarmed. No, these were Satan and his allies who were not only disarmed, but were triumphed over at that time. So then I have a heading, the eschatological puzzle. For many of those who concern themselves with the eschatological, that is in times, matters, This mass resurrection on the same day as Jesus' resurrection is intriguing, if not provocative. That is, it puts the first resurrection of Revelation 20, as well as the binding of Satan, as having already happened. Furthermore, it sets the thousand years clock ticking, whatever a thousand years was supposed to mean in this apocalyptic language. And let me say right here, I don't think that it was intended to be literally understood. Further, it makes us wonder, that is, the thousand years weren't supposed to be a literal thousand years. And uh, hopefully I talk about that in here. We'll see. So going on. Further, it makes us wonder at uh, at what time it is now. Is Satan still bound? If so, that would be a great surprise to many who think he's still out and about causing mayhem. Or if he has been let out uh, for a little while already, are we still in that little while? Or have we reached the end of the story where Satan, after having been let out to have his final hurrah, is now confined eternally to the lake of fire from where he can no longer work his wickedness on the earth? While those questions constitute quite a can of worms and are quite worth exploring, I believe, Indeed, I have opinions about them myself, but the point of this article is to show you that Jesus didn't just die and come back in those three days. Rather, he died, bound Satan, came back from the dead, and brought all the righteous captives with him. He brought their spirits back up from Sheol and Hades and had their bodies miraculously reconstituted as before. And these people went into Jerusalem, appearing as a great cloud of witnesses to all who lived there and to all who would visit. This is like the traditional view on steroids. Imagine being in Jerusalem at that time and seeing Abraham or King David. Imagine hearing their stories, not only of their own lifetimes, but of their time in Sheol. Imagine what this would do to your own faith if you were among those believers in Jerusalem who had never died before. Imagine if you had been one of the mothers whose children were murdered by Herod in Matthew 2. And then on the day that Jesus rises from the dead, he also brings back your children. I think that's what's being alluded to here in this Hebrews 11 passage. Hebrews 11:35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And if I'm wrong about this passage, then please tell me to what other Bible story is Hebrews alluding here? I don't think that this particular sentence was referring to some ancient to them event but one that had happened earlier in that same generation just after Jesus was born. And then 30-something years later, they got their children back raised from the dead. The title of this article is, Jesus' Resurrection Day was a Bigger Deal Than You May Realize. Do you see what I mean now? It's easy for us in this day and age to think of Easter as the day that Jesus rose from the dead, which was really great and after which he had his apostles start the church, which would run perpetually until he returns. But that view, as great as it may seem to some, pales in comparison to a fuller view of what happened that day. It was the most amazing day in earth history up to that point. And that's what I wanted to tell you in this article. Yes, I know that this raises a boatload of questions that I don't have time to get into here. You'll want to know what became of those who were raised after Jesus that day. You'll want to know more about the thousand years, You'll want to know why the Bible doesn't spell it out for us uh, in a more convenient form. Well, questions are good. Go look into it. Go work the puzzle and see what you come up with. And that was the end of my article. Uh, So I wanted to talk a little bit. Uh, I do think that these people did stay in the land and lived out that generation. And I think he came and got them. Uh, Obviously, this opens a huge can of worms because there's so much confusion about all manner of things, uh, a lot of how Bible prophecies are interpreted and misinterpreted. And so um, but I'll come out and tell you what I think about it. and then uh, you can go study it for yourself, hopefully. Uh, if I'm not getting you to study for yourself, I'm completely failing. I'm not just uh, doing these episodes to entertain. Uh, and I hope you find them entertaining. I hope they're well enough presented that you find them, uh, you know, intellectually stimulating. But if you're not going to check this stuff out for yourself, uh, boy, I've I've uh, missed the mark with you. And I've not found the, the right uh, recipe to get you uh, active in your own mind. And so let me say this. Uh, I, again, am not a prophet. God did not tell me to do this podcast. I do not believe that my interpretation of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think that God is helping me get everything right. In fact, if I did believe that, how could I explain having gotten things wrong in the past? Because I've gotten a lot of things wrong. In fact, I've told you about many of those so far in this series. So if God was helping me through the Spirit to get everything right, how did I get things wrong? And somebody said, well, you just weren't doing it right. (laughs) Well, you just weren't mature yet, you see. Like, well isn't that the reason you'd need the help of the spirit to make up for your own weaknesses and shortcomings? Yeah, Jack, that's it. Okay. Then how come it didn't make up for my own weaknesses and shortcomings? Uh, uh, I'll have to get back to that. (laughs) We'll circle back to that, right? That's a popular phrase this month. Uh, so it just doesn't answer all the questions. It's a sort of meme-ish, uh, um, thing that people throw out, oh, well, the Spirit helps me understand. I don't think that most people understand that very well, what they're saying. I, I don't think it, it works the way they think it works. In fact, I think they're wrong about a lot more things than they think they're wrong about. Uh, of course, I've studied more than most do, so uh, I'd be in a position to understand that better if they were wrong about things than would a person who doesn't study much. So, um, given that, I think I have got myself an audio here that doesn't require any editing. I managed not to burp throughout or cough or whatever. So, um, I think I will go ahead and sign off on this one and I have a uh, fun one coming up next. It's actually an article I just uh, found in my blog about cognitive biases. And while it doesn't mention uh Bible specifically, uh, I think it'll be super helpful because, uh, It's actually about the Baltimore Freddie Gray incident back in 2000 and what was that, 17, 18, something like that. And so, um, but I I want to talk about that next because it is so useful in seeing just what a great number of biases can be surrounding some particular time in human events and just to see what a complicated uh, society of people we are. And not in a good way, mind you, but in a bad way. And I think this is very pertinent to us as we sort of look at ourselves and what are we like when it comes to how we interpret the Scriptures, how we interpret the times, and so forth. So we're going to be looking at that next, and uh, eventually we will uh, get enough done that you feel like you're getting somewhere. I hope you're enjoying this already. I hope it's useful to you. It's certainly useful to me, and I'm having fun doing it. Uh And so uh, here we go forward. Thanks for joining in.